second. Hi, Larry. Larry Brevard's homesick. He asked me if I'd wave to him. <laughs> there you go, Larry. Hey, guys, why don't you get up on your feet, find somebody, tell them good morning.
What a great song to start the year with. You know, if you are a child of God, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, if we put that in the past tense, if we have confessed our sins, he has been faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we stand before him today pure and holy. And uh, that is an amazing thing. Then the battle of the spiritual life is to trust him. Just like that we sang out with that song. To learn to trust him when the, when the shadow of death is ahead of us. What, what a great reminder, great song. Thank you, Chad and worship team. Appreciate that. If you would take your worship guide and open them, I want to I kind of run through everything today. Lots of stuff coming up. Uh, welcome to the new year. We are, uh, hopefully you got most of your Christmas stuff cleaned up or at least your lights turned off. Because, you know, technically you can leave your lights up and plug them in again in November. But uh, the year begins. Some of you go back to school tomorrow or Tuesday. And uh, we have a lot of stuff going on um, that we want to highlight for you. First of all, what a great Christmas season we have. And I, I, this was in the worship guide last week, but I forgot to mention just how much we appreciate those of you who helped uh, to decorate and undecorate. But especially Nancy and Christine Mize, who helped us with the sketch that we did on, on Family Christmas Day. We, uh, she writes all those and uh, then takes care of directing them and all. And that's a lot of work. And we just really appreciate that. Christine was her right-hand gal and uh, made sure that all of the stuff was there. And I just, I just, you know, so much goes into all this between the worship team and Chad and all, and we really appreciate all their hard work to make these holy days special for us as a church. So uh, thank you for that. Um, also, uh, we want to welcome Wes and Anna Hearn to our uh, church membership family. Uh, glad to have you, and uh, so thanks for joining us there. For those of you who have been coming to Carpenter's Way and are interested in becoming a member, uh, we have quarterly class on Sunday morning, just one group where the elders and the pastoral team meet with you, and we go over uh, how you become a member, what the church believes, and, and why we do what we do, and why we don't do what we don't do. And uh, this is when you get into membership through that. Uh, we will have a date for you in the next week or two for the next one, those of you who might be interested in that. But that's how you become a member. So having said that, let's jump through some of the activities that are going to be coming up. Mops is tomorrow. So um, ladies, mothers of preschoolers, if you are interested in participating in that, just come, right, Alicia? Just show up and get, in, get plugged in. It is a very difficult job being a mother of a preschooler, and this is your opportunity to give your uh, children off for a couple hours to very secure, very safe staff and, and let them take care of your kids while you gather with other moms and are encouraged and uh, just uh, build fellowship and friendships that last a lifetime. So take, take that opportunity. That's there. Also, we have a ministry for, uh, for our seniors. It's called TNT uh, this Thursday night is our first one of the year, so please take note of that. Uh, all the information is in there. If you have any questions, you can call the uh, staff office. Students, 6th through 12th grade, uh, Hot Hearts is coming up. That is our winter retreat. You'll notice uh, in the middle towards the bottom there, information on that. There's not many spots left. That is a huge conference that our students go to. If you have questions, you can talk to Mark Dubos or Jeff Bonin. But uh, that's, there's about, I think, 7,000 students, right, Alicia? I mean, they fill a stadium. And... Uh, so that is a wonderful, wonderful uh, thing to be a part of. And uh, women's Bible studies will be starting up soon. You'll be hearing more about that. But uh, men, every Tuesday morning from 6.30 to about 7 or 7.10, 
We have a Bible study here around coffee. We don't have breakfast, but we just get together and we, we are doing life together. And we would invite you to try it out. Uh, we have a wonderful time together. Daryl Douglas leads it. It is not a lecture. It's, a, it's interactive. We read a section of scripture and talk about it. And I know it's early for a lot of us, but it's worth every bit of that time. So that's at 630. If you have any questions about those things, you can call the office or talk to us after. If you're visiting or have been and uh, immediately following the service, Julie and I will hang out up here. We would love to shake your hand. Uh, and meet you and, and uh, answer any questions you might have. We're awfully glad that you're here this morning, and it is our prayer that you fall in love with Jesus having been with us today. Sure, we want you to like us, but we really want you to fall in love with the Lord. So having said all that, uh, now I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time so we can take our offering now. If you're visiting, this is uh, the money we collect that supports our mission work globally as well as locally uh, and then also takes care of the finances of Carpenter's Way uh, we would ask if you're visiting, if this is not your home church, you not give. Uh, this is something that we as a, a family take care of and participate in. We do not want you distracted by money if you're visiting. If you're watching by way of Internet, we're awfully glad to have you with us this morning. And Larry, you can even give online. So, uh, But uh, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together, and then we're going to turn it over to Chad and, and uh, get back into worship. Lord Jesus, we love you. and, and uh, Thank you again that we can meet in this comfortable and heated place. And, and uh, Lord, thank you for this awesome season we just got through. And there's something exciting, too, about starting out a new year. And uh, we're so thankful that, uh, that you've brought us healthy into the new year. And I know that those in our church family that are hurting right now, um, uh, the loss of loved ones over the holidays, or maybe they've just been diagnosed with an illness, or, Father, they're just down. And we pray, Father, that you would be the one to lift them up, that they would put their hope in you. Father, help us all to put our hope in you in 2018. We all uh, have things that we, we hope for and we trust in that make us feel better, but ultimately all of those things will fail but you, Lord. So may be, this be the year that you raise us up, you lift our eyes up to you from where comes our help. Lord Jesus, we love you. Bless us. Bless us this morning for, for opening your word together, for singing songs of worship, and we, may we be closer to you, having been together with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh 
Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith.
broken calling to the God who moves the mountain. The earth is shaking, the weary waking to the God who moves the mountains, the God who moves the mountains, rocks are falling. That is a great song. That line in there, the earth is shaking, and boy, is that true. People are scared of not just evil leaders and dictators, but, but the earth itself, afraid that uh, nature itself is reacting. And, uh, but it says also in that song, and it is true, whether you hear it in the news or not, the weary are waking. Uh, there are some statistics that are showing that in Iran right now, more people are coming to Christ than ever in the history. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just remarkable what God is doing in places that we can't reach, in North Korea and in, in, uh, in China, the people that are coming to Christ. Um, don't, don't let, uh, this is a country that is very proud of her history and should be, and it's a wonderful place to live, but it's also a very self-centered country. You, you recognize this when you leave this country just how American we are, and that's a good thing, but it's also a dangerous thing. Um, we begin to believe that what we experience is the truth, and I want to make it clear that what we experience is the truth as we experience truth, but it isn't the global truth, and uh, the weary are waking. People are coming to God all over the world, and what a privilege to be a part of it. What a privilege to participate that in finances and prayer and be part of what God is doing in the world in this time. And I, as we enter a new year, we have no idea what this year is going to hold. Um, but I, I, I simply want to say, buckle your seatbelts because God is at work, our daddy's at work, and we get to be a part of it. We were, God, God didn't just randomly select us to live at this time, and you weren't, you weren't born just of passion of your parents. You were born by the passion of God. And you've been placed on this planet at this time for his exact purpose for your life. So find peace, find joy. Your age doesn't limit your ministry, uh, nor does your knowledge of Scripture. Uh, I just want to encourage you this year, and this will play into this message this morning, but I, wanted you, I want to encourage you this morning to be satisfied with nothing less in your Christianity than intimacy with God. Do not settle for Christian religion. Know him personally and intimately because Satan wants to counterfeit that. He wants to counterfeit an intimate personal relationship with the God of the universe with Christianity. And it is available to you in spades. And, and, and you'll, you'll kind of see that happening this morning a little bit in our message. But uh, man, what a, what a great song. Pumps my heart up, gets me ready. You know, I love Christmas. I love Thanksgiving and Christmas, the family, the food. And we put Zach on a plane yesterday and our, our decorations are all down. I also love the order of the new year. I, I love that it, we can sit, step back and, and, uh, and breathe a little bit and now get back into our routine. Make God the one who floats your routine. Make him the cornerstone of everything that you do. Uh, and I know that's hard to think through. How do I do that as a coach in a high school? Uh, you walk with him. You pray about stuff. You pray for the kids you work with. See it as a mission field. But not only that, ask God to give you wisdom. If you're a football coach, ask him to give you the wisdom to make the right plays. 
and trust him with the results. Uh, and uh, if, if, if you work, if you're raising kids, uh, I see a lot of you on the internet. I know you get tired, but this is, there is no higher calling than raising the next generation of godly men and women. So raise the next generation of godly men and women, and, and it begins the first week of life. Um, I, know, I know it gets scary out there. What are my kids like? They'll never, know, they'll never know how scary it is, just like you did. Your parents were freaking out when you were a kid. What's it going to be like for my kids? We, we just think it's you know, crazy, but it's our experience, and your kids' experience is going to be different. The millennial generation is moving on. They're going to one day run our country. <laughs> Sorry. I just don't feel like going to work today. I'm fatigued. Um, but, but beyond that, there's a passion in your hearts, millennials, but, but you will one day run all this. Start learning now. Uh, walk with God. Know God. Let him own your heart. Uh, you, I, we, uh, we were watching TV last night, and uh, I have no doubt in the sincerity of Sarah McLaughlin and those dogs that are freezing during the winter, but there's a whole lot more stuff that we need to be involved in. I mean, we, we, there, there, there's, there's people whose lives are falling apart, and we get the privilege of, of, of knowing them and, and, and be investing in their lives personally. So all of that, that was free. As I was thinking about getting back into 1 Samuel, I, uh, and especially this week's text, I really felt like it was important that, that we reiterate and understand what my job is. Uh, my task, it, it really isn't a complicated one. People, people think, oh, I'd never want to be a pastor. I have the easiest job in the world because Scripture actually, I didn't say least emotional job in the world. I said easiest to do because actually laid out in Scripture is my job description. It, it's not a complicated one. Uh, God has tasked me as a pastor, as the lead pastor in a church, as the point man on a whole team of under-shepherds or leaders that God uh, has given this church. And their responsibility is to make sure that you are spiritually equipped. It's our job, as Ephesians 4.12 says, to do God's work and to build the church up, you, the body of Christ. And this is to continue until you come to such unity in your faith and knowledge of God's Son that you're mature, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Not man's standards, not what do we think a good church should be, but what does God say a healthy church looks like? That's our job. Then, and what does that look like? What are the ramifications of being mature in Christ? We're no longer immature like children. And what does that look like? We're not tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching that comes along inside of Christianity. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. That's our job. That's, and my job as the point man is to, is to communicate that with you. I, I want to say a side note. There's a lot of us who have been in churches and are reading books about prophecy. Uh, you know, the Antichrist, and all those things are interesting and maybe even helpful sometimes. But I want to make it clear, none of, you tell, none of those books prepare you for it. They just say, make sure you're saved, right? Make sure you're prepared. So that means salvation. Well, let me just tell you that one of the things that they don't get into in most of those books is the fact that during that tribulation period, if in fact we're in it, as some say, is that even the church themselves, if God doesn't come and take us out, even the church herself will be deceived because she doesn't know what's true. So what we do week in and week out is preparing you for whatever crazy things are coming out of the mouth of Christian leaders or secular leaders. Paul instructs us me specifically, how I'm to do that. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word of God. 
be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. In other words, whether you like it or not. Keep teaching the word. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. See, I told you my job isn't hard. It's, it's clear. Whether or not I like it is a different question. I mean, I love my job. Some days are harder than others, just like yours. But it's not a difficult task. Remember, the goal of my task is actually not to control your behavior. That's not the goal of my task. The goal of my task is not to manipulate your behavior into what I think you should be like or the elders think you should be like. It's not our job actually to tell you what to do with alcohol unless Scripture clearly says it's a sin. For instance, it is our job to tell you not to commit adultery. Don't give in to your passions that feed your flesh. It's not our job to tell you not to drink, which most of us grew up with. That may be my preference, but that's not God's, and it's not my job to parent you. It's my job to pastor you. It's our job to raise you up being mature in Christ. So it's super important, important that we do not teach merely from my heart or minds or our hearts or minds or prejudices or personal mores. This verse tells us to make sure that what we're teaching is God's word, not our own. You get it? And all of us at one, and, and all of us at one time or another have sat under preachers who are telling you what they think. And you may agree with what they think, but that's not God's think, right? Just because I have a personal moray or feeling doesn't mean that's how God feels unless I can validate that from the Word of God, right? Looking for more than 18, I want you to shake your head, even if you're, if you're thank you, yes sir is a good term. At ease, soldier. Now, what, uh, you threw me off, John. So we are, why, why Scripture? Why is that so significant that that's central to what we do? Because Hebrews 4.12 tells us the Word of God is alive and it's powerful. And it's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The Word of God does that. And 2 Timothy 3 tells us that Scripture is actually the very breath of God, inspired. The Greek word means the breath of God. It's his, it's, his, it's his heart, and it's useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. And we all got wrong stuff. The pastor, the elders, the Bible study leaders, we all have wrong stuff, and the Scripture corrects us when we're, when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do what's right. God uses it, the Word of God, to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. So now we've come full circle. If our job as leaders is to, is to mature you so you're not blown around by every wind of doctrine, the most important thing we do is teach you how to handle God's Word, right? That's the most important thing we do. It's God's written Word as used by the Holy Spirit that lives within God's children. The Holy Spirit, not God's Word, but, but the Holy Spirit that brings about permanent spiritual change and change in how we see the world, especially the lost. God is in the business of changing our worldview. And he does that through the Holy Spirit living within his children and through his word. That's why we do verse by verse scripture here. I want to re remind you of that. That's why sometimes it hurts to hear. And there are even some texts, and I've told you this before, that I teach that are very painful to teach. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I teach you that I have yet to apply to my own life. Well, that makes you a heretic. No, it makes me human. I know that you wish that there was a, a, a man or woman around that actually not only teaches God's word effectively, but lives it out 100%. That person doesn't exist. And if they claim to exist, they might want to run for president next time. The, the fact is, we're all struggling with this. And so, as we go verse by verse, one of the reasons I do that is because I don't get to pick and choose which truths to teach. I, I have to teach his truth. And there are some texts that are a little more challenging than others to teach because as I stand here in my mind, I hear Satan going, you are not that guy. 
at which time I remind him to shut up because he, his future is not bright. Mine is. So we come here together understanding that for those of you who are the children of God, your sin has been removed. God's grace is sufficient for you. You are, in fact, saved. You are, in fact, as saved as you will ever be. And now it's our job to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become, as we've been talking the last few weeks, to actually to not only be royal, but actually to live out royally. Why? Because we're ambassadors, and we live in a hopeless time. There are pastors that gets on CNN and get on Fox News, and they try to talk about all the political ramifications of things and how to fix politics. There's only one solution to our country and our world's problems. His name is Jesus. And as you accept his offer to forgive you, his Holy Spirit comes and lives inside, and then the fruit of the Spirit that we all desire starts living out. But because that takes so long and it takes so much surrender, and most of us really don't want to surrender, let's be honest, because we don't trust God. I mean, we know he's good, but we do also know he's not safe, so we don't want to surrender every part of our life to him for fear of what he will do. We try to get you all of the benefits of having that intimacy with God without ever having to work at it. That's like having a good marriage, not living together. The truth is, you might have less fighting if you don't live together, but you're not going to have a good marriage. You got to hang out. You got to talk. You got to wrestle sometimes. You got to fight through stuff. That's a relationship. And that's what God wants from us. You see, God loves you. He loves me. And he's adopted us. And I am, in fact, as we've been talking about, his royal child. That's a done deal. But now, he is at work within me, chiseling away at areas of Mark's life that need to be chiseled away. And his work will continue to make me his masterpiece. In case you think I'm making this up, here's a verse from your childhood. First, or Philippians 1.6, remember that? You memorized it maybe in Sunday school. Paul is writing to a discouraged group of Philippian believers, not Philippine, but Philippian believers, who are discouraged. And he says, look, I am certain that God, who began this work, good work in you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day that Jesus Christ returns. All of that being said, there's a lot we're going to go through in First and Second Samuel that are going to have you leave and going, I feel like I got beat up this morning. Well, me too. But sometimes, that's not being beat up. It's, the, it's that feel of the chisel. Ding, 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 ding. Not to make you his child, but because you are his child. There's a lot of stuff that Satan's got us believing that sound good and feel good that simply aren't biblically based. And God needs to chisel away at that. So as we jump into 1 Samuel chapter 4 this morning, I'm going to pray right now that God will not only chisel away, but give us willing hearts to be chiseled. Lord Jesus, we've told you we love you. We told you we trust you. We sung songs about believing you. We know you're the God who can move mountains. But Father, we also know that you have a chisel that needs to work in our hearts to make us more like you, to make our worldview more like you. So I ask this morning as we jump into this text, you would do just that. That scripture would change not only our behavior, but the way we see the world. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, this morning's text, this story from 1 Samuel chapter 4 is not a complicated story. Although, on its surface, it's one of those strange Old Testament stories where something happens, like, something happened here, but let's keep reading to something I can understand. It's actually a great story. And when I started reading it a few weeks ago and started studying, I really got excited to teach it. So let's jump right in. But I do warn you, it's going to chisel away at you just like it has me. At that time, 
1 Samuel 4, 1. Israel was at war with the, uh, with the Philistines. The Israelite army was camped near Ebenezer, and the Philistines were at Aphek. The Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp, and the elders of Israel that were gathering asked each other, why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? Now think. I want you to go deep. I want you to take all that context that you've been taught your whole lives, and I want you to put it into gear here because it's really, really important to see the value in, within its context. This is after the Mosaic Covenant has been ratified and agreed upon by the people at Mount Sinai when Moses was up there too long, so they made the gold calf. This is after all that. And I want to remind you that after Moses comes down from that mountain and has to have the Ten Commandments chiseled out of the rock twice, after he gets rid of the prophets of Baal, or those prophets, or those people who are worshiping, not Baal, I'm sorry, but the people who are worshiping the cow, after he kills them, he says to the nation of Israel, he reads the commandments to them, and the nation of Israel literally stands and says, we agree to this contract. We agree to be faithful to God. And part of the contract was that you will know when God is in your camp by your victories, and you will know when you have broken your side of the contract because you'll start losing in battle. It is very clear. And they had those scriptures. They had the Torah. They could open the books and read it. The elders who are asking, why did we lose in battle? are so far removed as the religious leaders of that people from the scriptures themselves that they actually ask a ridiculous question. 5,000 years later, here we sit in East Texas on a Sunday morning, and I can tell you exactly why they lost 4,000 men that day. Judges 21, 25 is God's description of these times. In those days, Israel had no king. Days of the judges. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This was not merely a description of the people of Israel. In these times of the judges that we're reading in in 1 Samuel, you have a high priest and his sons who are stealing from God's offerings, seducing and even raping young women who are volunteering to serve, offer and sacrifices in the tabernacle. And he is not dealing with his sons, the high priest, in the way that God instructed him to. He had been given a clear job description and specifically on how to deal with people who messed with God's things. And he did not obey them. The leadership of Israel is a total mess, even to the point where they will not go back to the scriptures or the covenant God had established with them to find out why they would lose. They simply sit in a circle going, I don't know what happened. God should have won. They're so messed up in thinking that watch what they do now. Then they said, hey, I've got an idea. I added that. Let's bring the Ark of Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh if we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. I want to leave that up there. I want you to notice the it will save us from our enemies. Go ahead. Go ahead. It. Okay. It will save us from our enemies. Now, in defense, to be fair, of, of these people speaking, the Hebrew word for it has been translated in some New Testament versions as it, others as he but in whatever the case is in reality, the he or the it seems to be referring to the Ark of the Covenant. And I will show that to you as we read through. Because everybody, including those who are in great pain, refer to the, 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 the tragedy of the Ark of the Covenant. They're not concerned about God. They're concerned about the Ark of the Covenant. That's the big deal. Back to the story. 
Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. Verse 4, so they sent the men to Shiloh. Just a side note for those of you who study the Old Testament, Shiloh at this time is where the temple is. It's, it's, the, it's the place where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the main place to go for worship. So they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim, Hophni and Phinehas. Remember those boys? Been talking about them for a month now. That is Eli, the high priest's sons, who are not good men. These are the guys who are stealing offerings, who are raping the women and seducing other women who are there volunteering in the tabernacle and the temple. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into camp, their shout of joy was so loud it made the ground shake. Yes, there's the Ark. Yes, we are saved. We just brought in the nuclear warhead of our day. Oh, how they loved the Ark and all it stood for. It stood for nationalism. It stood for Judaism. It stood for Moses. It stood for victory. It stood for God doing for them their every nationalistic and personal wish. The Ark of the Covenant. It was wonderful for the Israelite warriors to see Hophni and Phinehas show up with the Ark. Yes, they've got a little woman problem and a little theft problem. And yes, they're not really good priests. And by the way, if you remember our reading from a few chapters before, it says that everybody in Israel knew exactly what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. They didn't remove them. They were just glad the ark was there. And we're glad that Hophni and Phinehas, they are great at a party. Verse 6. What is going on, the Philistines asked. What's all that shouting about in the Hebrew camp? When they were told it was because the ark of the Lord had arrived, they panicked. Now listen to how they view this. The gods have come into their camp, they cried. This is a disaster. We have never had to face anything like this before. Help! Who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? They are the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues when Israel was in the wilderness. Oh, how the Philistines feared the gods that that ark brought to their camp. They had heard how the the gods of the Israelites had inhabited the ark and destroyed the Egyptian armies and feared these people, from, uh, freed them from slavery and defeat, they panicked. For the powerful, awesome, real gods, and I'm using their term, real gods of Israel had been brought into the battle, and so their elders prepared for, is, for battle against Israel and her gods. We know there's only one God, but I'm using their phrase. Verse 9. Fight as never before, Philistines. If you don't, we will become the Hebrew slaves just as they had been ours. Stand up like men and fight. So the Philistines fought desperately and Israel was defeated yet again. The slaughter was great. 30,000 Israelite soldiers died that day. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. The ark of God was captured and Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were killed. A man from the tribe of Benjamin ran from the battlefield and arrived at Shiloh later the same day. He had torn his clothes and put dust on his head to show his grief. Eli was waiting beside the road to hear the news of the battle, for his heart trembled for the safety of the ark of God. When the messenger arrived and told what had happened, an outcry resounded throughout the town. What is that noise all about, Eli asked. The messenger rushed over to Eli, who was 98 years old and blind. He said to Eli, I have just come from the battlefield. I was there this very day. What happened, my son? Eli demanded. 
Israel has been defeated by the Philistines, the messenger replied. The people had been slaughtered, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed, and the ark of God had been captured. When the messenger mentioned what had happened to the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and he died, for he was old and overweight. He had been Israel's judge for 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of her delivery. When she heard that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth. She died in childbirth, but before she passed away, the midwives tried to encourage her. Don't be afraid, they said. You have a baby boy. But she didn't answer or pay attention to them. She named the child Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? For she said, Israel's glory is God. She named him because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and husband were dead. Then she said, in her last breath, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. There's a theme. There's a theme through this. The Jews are obsessed with the ark. And the Philistines are terrified of the God of the Jews. To be clear, no one, Philistine or Jew, on the battlefield that day expected Israel army to lose now that the ark was in camp. To be clear from this text, the Jews, the Jews thought they would defeat the Philistines because they brought their trump card, the ark, into battle. Their nuclear bomb. On the other hand, the Philistines thought they would lose battle that day because that represented the Jewish God and they were terrified that the gods of the Jews would fight for them. Only one side that day actually thought God himself was the issue. The Philistines. The Jews thought Judaism was the issue. The Ark of the Covenant. Their little trinket that, yes, God lived in the middle, but that wasn't their concern. Remember what God had told young Samuel, who is still... 12 years old at this time in 1 Samuel 3, 11 to 14. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all of my threats against Eli and his family from the beginning to the end. I have warned them, him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and hasn't, he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sons of Eli, the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices and offerings. If you'd like to hear more of a conversation on that, go back into our archives and we, and we have messages on that. But I want to remind you why this happened. Why was God going to remove Eli and his sons and their children? 1 Samuel 2, 27. One day a man of God came to Eli and gave him this message from the Lord. I revealed myself to your ancestors when they were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor Aaron from among the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear priestly vests as he served me. And I assigned the sacrificial offerings to you priests. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? In other words, I gave you this great job and you've scorned it. Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. I want to pause for a second. And I actually don't think God is mad that they're fat from the offerings of Israel. I think he's simply saying, you have benefited from all the cool stuff that comes with being my priest. And I never once got in your face about that. You have benefited from all the fat that you got to eat. 
You are in fact fat and old, and your sons are fat and young. But you have, and you have enjoyed all of that. But, but, the Lord, the God of Israel says this, I promise that your branch of the tribe of Levi would always be my priests. But I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. Take a breath. Because that, my friends, you can, you can look at the seduction of these young women. You can look at the thieving of the meat. You look at Eli, who doesn't discipline his sons according to God's direction. And those are symptoms. The problem that makes those symptoms take place is that they took God lightly. Too often, we as followers of God, forever since Mosaic Covenant, have always looked at our behavior and said, that's the problem. I would like to remind you that your behavior is not the problem. It is why you behave or we behave the way we behave. You see, man looks on the outside, but Scripture tells us God looks at the heart. If you are right now in an adulterous relationship or an immoral relationship, that is a problem, but it is not the core problem any more than a 104-degree temperature is the problem when you have the flu. It is a symptom of the problem. These people have a problem. They think lightly, and these people, being Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, think lightly of God. Verse 31, The time is coming when I will put an end to your family so that it will no longer serve as my priest. All the members of your family will die before their time. None will reach an old age. They will watch with envy as I pour out prosperity on the people of Israel. But no members of your family will ever live out their days. The few not cut off from serving at the altar will survive, but only so their eyes can go blind and their hearts break, and their children will die a violent death. And to prove that what I have said has come true, I will cause your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. They, these three, took God lightly. They loved the benefits of being gods. They just didn't take God personally as valuable and as serious as they took his stuff. To be clear, this isn't the first time in history this has happened. God's kids have always taken God lightly. How about Genesis chapter 4? When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of the crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you just do what's right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. To be clear, Cain, who eventually kills his brother rather than does the right thing, went to the right God in the right place to worship in the right way. He just didn't bring the right sacrifice. What happens? This is what it looks like instead of asking a question. This is what it looks like to like 90% of God. This is what it looks like 
to love all the stuff he offers, like peace, joy, love, long-suffering, all that stuff, and, and the fellowship of church, and the encouragement that comes from taking care of each other, and, and calling each other, and, and having Bible study, and growing old together, and raising our kids together. We, we like all that stuff. But if we leave out that personal, intimate walk with God, we're taking God lightly. Nobody wants to go to hell. Even the Satanist doesn't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. That was never the question. The question is, do we want to know God? And for these people, for Cain, the answer is no. They liked worship. Cain wanted to sacrifice. And he wanted to bring his own stuff. How can you blame the guy? If it's just about religion, that is an acceptable move. Come as you are with what you want to bring. But that's not what God said. He said, come as you are to me at my place. You will be welcomed, but you must bring this sacrifice. And if you want to debate with me over it's not the sacrifice, who cares what it is? God says do the right thing and he must have known what it was. And instead he doubled down on the wrong thing and killed his brother thinking that God didn't have a lot of people to choose from so he'll have to like him. Well, God doesn't have to anything. If you think that this is a unique experience, these two stories, look at John chapter 6 with me, will you? So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boat and went across to Capernaum to look for him. So this is the day after he feeds the 5,000. He wake, they wake up the next morning, Jesus and the disciples have gone across the lake. They find him on the other side of the lake and they ask, yo, teacher, I added the yo, rabbi, when did you get here? I wanted to add a Yiddish accent, but I can't. <clears throat> Jesus replied, who, by the way, doesn't play games? I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understand the miraculous signs. For those of you who like the miraculous signs of God, please understand that it's not enough to like the miraculous signs of God. You must understand them. There's something to be understood. They like the miraculous signs. That's why they wanted to be with him. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food, which, by the way, is why they liked his miraculous signs. You guys like what I do because you get to eat. Spend your energy seeking eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me his seal of approval. Oh, that's why he did the miracles. Do you know why Jesus did miracles? Not because he felt bad for lots of people. Because there was a lot of people that he left sick. The reason he did miracles is to validate that somebody powerful had sent him. You see, Jesus' miraculous things from healing the dead to feeding the 5,000 was only a prop to the message that he wanted to preach. Through me, there's eternal life. They weren't the end game. Jesus Christ did not come to make the blind see and to make the lame walk and the hungry fed. He did those things so that they could hear about food that would never leave us hungry again and water that would never leave us thirsty again. If we get the cool stuff without God, we still go to hell just happier. That's what these miracles were. Simply the Father's seal or validation, His approval of Jesus. Verse 28, they replied, We want to perform God's miracles too. Okay, take that in. 
This is a conversation. We want to do that stuff you do. We want the cool stuff. What should we do? How can we do those miracles? Jesus told them, the only work God wants from you right now is to believe in the one he sent. Next verse. Okay, I'm not not breaking this chapter up. Next verse, and I want you to remember, they just said, we like you. We want to join your little Jesus circus. We want to be in the center ring with you. In fact, you can take a day off. Give us, teach us how you do these things, and we will do them for you. Verse 30, they answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. Excuse me, I just thought you, I just thought you said you believed in me. It's manipulation, my friends. I want to tell you that for 3,000 years, people have been trying to learn how to manipulate God's hand so that you can move him to action. Maybe there's books about that today. If you pray the right way, if you say the right things, if you behave a certain way, if you believe, if you speak it, it will happen. You will get your miracle today. That and a buck 50 will get you a cup of coffee at a cheap cafe. It's a lie. Show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture says Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Oh, now they're playing Moses and Jesus off each other. We're preferring Moses to you, Jesus, right now, but you can convince us if you do something really sweet. We're kind of hungry. Our kids are crying. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. (laughs) How would he know? See, we even forget that, don't we? As he stands before the crowds, he said, Moses didn't give. And they're like, well, we're students of the word. We know what happened. And he goes, I wrote the word. We forget. They forget. Moses didn't give you the bread of heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread from God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am that bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you've seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of those that he has given me, but that I should raise them at at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Let me say it in Hebrew. Isn't this salvation, the son of heaven or Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say he came down from heaven? I mean, we put him in a barn when he was born, but nonetheless, we know his mom and dad. This can't be God's son. Um, That's what it looks like, you guys to take Jesus lightly. This is what it looks like. Cain and is what it looks like to take Jehovah lightly. This is what it looks like to take God lightly. They want his toys, the circus, the miracles they're asking for, food, health, whatever they want. But they don't want Jesus. He's got to do enough for us or them for us to want him too. He's got to prove that he's worth owning us. 
It's kind of scary. What would it look like if we, God's children, stopped seeking him and simply began seeking his fun circus, his power, so much so that we simply desire every day and every prayer and every time we sing a song for him to simply make us happy with no thought to make us holy? What happens if we as God's children seek the fruit of the Spirit, like peace and hope, we don't really care so much about patience. But without actually having God inhabit, own, and direct our lives. What would it look like if we, facing the battles of our lives, bring in our own personal version of the Ark of the Covenant when we face personal defeat and assure ourselves of victory because, well, we have prayed and simply declared ourselves victorious in the name of God. Expecting God to do our fighting for us because, well, we just simply claimed what he should do. I know that some of you will never come back or tune into this again. Because it's even invaded conservative theology churches here. But just because you claim something doesn't mean it's going to happen. Just because you speak sickness away doesn't mean it goes. And at some point, when you do it 5,000 times, every time somebody Facebooks you a prayer request, and you write on there, in the name of Jesus, I declare that that baby is healed, when are you going to ask yourself, maybe my theology is flawed? Maybe I have my own Ark of the Covenant I keep bringing into camp. And at least, here's the thing, if you think I'm a heretic or wrong, at least have the courage at least have the courage to ask yourself, why is that demand never answered in my life? You see, this isn't about joining a religion, and it isn't about you know, getting a group of people. It is, it's, I get it, I understand, but it is still amazing to me when somebody visits Carpenter's Way, and they say, I'm looking for a church that says blah, blah, blah. Well, my advice to you is you have a, probably an iPhone. Why don't you just videotape yourself or videotape? That's how old I am. Why don't you just record yourself talking and tell yourself what you believe, listen to it every week, sing a song that may or may not be accurate biblically, and just call that church. You see, I thought we were supposed to be chiseled away by the Word of God. I didn't think we came together all agreeing that we have this great truth, and therefore God never teaches us. This is unsettling. Mark does not want Anna to get cancer in 2018, just so you know. And if it happens, I will not be okay with it. But I hope that somebody in this church will stand at my side and say, God is still good, if not safe. I hope that someone, this is part of the story that I haven't told many of you, but when Zach was laying on that in the ICU unit at two, and forgive me for keep talking about it, but there's a lot to the story. Some lady from Michigan somehow got the phone number of the phone next to his bed in ICU and called me every day for five days to tell me that God told her in the middle of the night that if I would lay on my son's body now keep in mind that he's two on a respirator in dialysis, can't eat if I will literally lay on his body, confess all of my secret sins, God will heal Zach and he and I walk out of the hospital in case you're not clear that's bullcrap well, how do you know? Did you try? I would have suffocated the boy. 
but she believed it. Just because you believe something does not make it true. I wonder if a local church having this kind of mentality looks like Revelation chapter 2. Look at this. Look at what Jesus... Write this letter, John, to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. I know I keep bringing this up, but this is a powerful... A lot of people think we're in Laodicea. The church is like Laodicea. I think we're Ephesus. This is the message for the one who holds the seven stars. It's Jesus, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I can explain it later to you, or you can get online and see my message on that. It'll explain where the gold lampstands are. This is Jesus writing to this church. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. That is a great church. I know you don't tolerate evil people. Good for them. You have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but they're not. Good for them. Good theology. You've even discovered that they're liars. That's a good thing. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Wow. This is a good church by every definition. Verse 4. But I have this one complaint against you. Everybody here can read, right? Those of you who are putting this on the internet, would you put this verse for people to read? Keep looking at it. Let it sink in. They're doing all the right stuff. Good theology. Great ministries. Suffering for Jesus. There's just one small problem. They don't love him. What happens when we wake up one day and we discover that we are in love with a Christian religion that's about Americanism and about us and even theologies that come season after season, book after book, telling you that if you only learn how to pray everything you ever dreamed you can have, it's a lie because God is sovereign and he's got a good plan that involved killing his only begotten son. A good plan that involved pain. In the end, it's great. In the middle, not so much. Well, Pastor, what does this have to do with the people the Jews, the Jews have always been in love with Judaism. Always. Liberal, secular Jews love being Jews. Moderate Jews who do the festivals and, the, and, and, and some of the things like a bad Catholic, they love Judaism. They've even reinvented the Passover to be a reference to the uh, Hitler movement and all that happened there. And then the devout, super conservative Jews with their tangly hair. Don't misunderstand. They love being Jews. They just don't like God's plan. How can you say that? Because they had a day when they could have embraced it. Palm Sunday. Jesus presented them to be their king. He even went into the temple the next day and he presented them as the Passover lamb. I will do this for you. I will destroy this and rebuild it. I am the one. I'm the high priest. Just follow me. And 
died within three or four days. They're clamoring for his death. Why? Because all they wanted was good health care. All they wanted was more food. All they wanted was the Romans to leave them alone or at, maybe they could lead the Romans. That's all they wanted. Even the disciples in the upper room are debating over who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom Jesus is going to d- develop. See, nationalism is Satan's action to get us to replace it, allegiance to God. I'm very conservative politically. I'm a conservative guy. I love East Texas, but I will never sell my soul to this country or even the great Republic of Texas or the value systems of the great Republic of Texas. And I will not let my own conservative values dictate who I will minister to. My kids will tell you that there are times I say things while watching Fox News that are not kind about individuals. And usually it's my daughter that reminds me that I'm probably too conservative and rednecky for ministry. She could be wrong as a millennial. The, the, the truth is that, that we're all battling with this. Most of you ladies are wearing a cross around your neck. What does it mean? Madonna wears a cross. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Bing Crosby with. Help me. Thank you. What? Yes, David Bowie, your favorites too. David Bowie is not a follower of Jehovah God. It's such a great song, though, isn't it? Yeah, I'm gonna, some, Sunday, some Christmas, I'm going to sing that for you. The, the, the thing is that just because it's warm and fuzzy, and it doesn't make it true. True is true. These people should have known when they approached the battlefield, they were about to get their fannies handed to them because they were not right with God. That's a different covenant than you and I have with God. I'm not telling you your life will get better if you're right with God. That's not what I'm telling you. That's the lie that people are propagating today. I'm simply telling you that God is good even if 2018 is difficult. God is good. Stay close to Him. Trust Him. And when things are tough and are going on, trust Him twice as much. Run to Him for comfort, for peace, for hope, and even cry out like Jesus did that this cup be taken from you but end your prayer with not my will, yours be done, because I know you're good. God's instructions to these people is found in Joel 2, where he told them to stop tearing their clothing in grief, but tear their hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. At the end of the letter to the church of Ephesus, Jesus told them, return to me. So here's my challenge to us as a church this year from this text. Get rid of your arcs and walk with God. As individuals, please, I I plead with you. For me, uh, and I, I know you've had to put up with this royal thing the last few weeks. It's just going through my mind. The crown was great for me. It may not be great for you. But I am... I'm, I'm saying more than ever. I said it to my brother this last week. I just want to live royal for one year of my life. I want this year to live like a royal. What does that look like to me? Why does that matter? Because I think Elizabeth was lonely. Okay, for those of you who watched it. And I forgot, this is a lonely life. Jesus was lonely. He was called a man of many sorrows. It's hard to pick. Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? You want to go beyond being saved? You want to really follow me? What did he say, family? What did he say? 
Deny yourself. Pick up your... Oh, that's right. This isn't to make me happy. It's to make me holy. And even more, he's got a plan that's good and it may involve, if he killed his own son for me, maybe he'll kill me for somebody else. He would never do that. He wanted a Pentecostal church, I'll tell you that. But he will. You ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? You see, this is a real deal we're a part of. This is real. The Jews started thinking it was a national thing where they just fought and won and then took over land and wait. You think this is weird. This is just the beginning. Wait for the next couple chapters when the people start clamoring for a king and God warns them, you don't want a physical king. If you get a king, you're going to have to pay 10% of everything you own to him. Do you remember what the people say? I'll give you, I'll give you a preview because some of you are going to cheat and look ahead. We'd rather have a king that is unjust and steals our stuff than you as our king. Um, I have been told on a half dozen occasions, if you're right about God, I don't want anything to do with him. So, I end the message on this. Don't fool yourself. Just because you want God to be something does not make him that thing. It would be better for you to do what Jesus said and choose you this day who you're going to serve than to pretend, to pretend that you are the servant of the living God and only really be living for yourself like this is some sort of good luck charm. It's not. It's a war. And it's difficult. And we need to be in this battle together. I need that. You need that. That doesn't happen corporately. It happens individually. Pick up your cross and follow him. Return to him. Give yourself to him. And let's see what he does. It may be painful. It may be more painful because you might get the things you long for. And then after it's over, you're going to still have to walk with him in your wealth. Which one of those is more difficult? You know. Because <laughs> when you get diagnosed with a scary disease, you start praying. And when you're cured, we stop praying right? I'm, please tell me I'm not the only one here. The reason God will not give me a billion dollars is because I'd never pray about money again. I'd, if I got a billion dollars, I'm paying all of your mortgages off. Hail the pastor. That's why God's not going to give me a billion dollars. Because if I did that, you'd never pray. You'd never seek him. God doesn't want us comfortable. We don't, we don't read. I got to stop. Lord Jesus, take this and change our worldview. Change our view in the mirror. And may we, Father, we still want what we want. Even Jesus prayed to have the cross removed from him. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with us praying that we're healed. There's nothing wrong with us praying that our kids are healed. Nothing wrong with us wanting a better job or more money. Unless we don't end with, but not my will, yours be done. We should pray. We should seek you. We should seek peace. We should seek hope. We should take care of our responsibilities. But only as you provide. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. If you're new and you'd like to talk with this depressing pastor, I'll be up front. Worst, he would lose his children and his wife. So he drove